are Herb Adventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Charlotte, and today we are speaking with a special guest, Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is executive chairman of Royvent Sciences, a company he founded in 2014 that focuses on applying technology to drug development through the incentive alignment model. As of 2017, Royvent was valued at $7 billion, and in 2019, the company had over 40 investigational drugs in development across 14 therapeutic areas in its family companies. Vivek has served on the board of directors of Moivent Sciences, a subsidiary of Royvent Sciences, and serves on the board for Sumitovant Biopharma. Prior to founding Royvent, Vivek was a biotech investor and partner of QVT Financial, and he co-founded a startup, Campus Venture Network, as an undergrad at Harvard University. Currently, in his role as, as executive chairman, after stepping down from CEO, Vivek is developing his personal voice on matters of civic importance. Now, let's get to the bottom line. Since you studied biology at Harvard, we have to ask you about your time here. What were you like as an undergraduate, and what were some of your favorite parts of going to Harvard? Yeah, I mean, I um, I showed up freshman year. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to study. I gravitated towards biology because I took a genetics course in this fall of my freshman year, and you know, I was it was at, it was the Human Genome Project was still relatively new in our memory and psyche at that time. The idea that we could actually map out biology using something other than what I thought of high school biology as being, which is just learning about, you know, organ systems or, or classes of, of species. Now this could actually be mapped out at the level of genome. That was pretty interesting to me. And so it was my genetics course in freshman year of college that took me in the direction of, of studying biology. But my favorite part of Harvard wasn't just being a, you know, biology major or taking my chemistry classes along with it, but was the idea that you could surround yourself with people who had excellence in a wide range of areas from music to sports to science to thinking about literature or history in ways that I hadn't really been exposed to before that. And, and for me, the best part of it actually wasn't any one thing, but the fact that I got the totality of the whole experience out of it, including intellectual experience, but also experience ex dealing with people who, many of whom were just awesome at what they did and, and motivated me to be better at the, at the few things I wanted to do. And we know that you actually started a company during your time as an undergrad and you ended up selling it. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're able to do that as a student? Yeah, it was, it was at the tail end of my time as a student. So it was during my senior year. I actually met a friend of, who became a longtime friend of mine, but a guy who I didn't know at the time, Travis May. He was on the same trip as me to China, actually, for what, the Harvard College in Asia program, right? HCAP as it was called. We were sitting next to each other on a bus in Beijing. And we started chatting about some of his ideas. He was an entrepreneurially minded guy, wasn't particularly talkative, quiet guy himself, but he was the co-president of, of the Harvard Entrepreneurial Society or, or something, it was some club of that name approximately. And you know, I hadn't really thought about the world of, of entrepreneurship very much during my time as, as an undergrad. But you know, there was something about the ideas that we began talking about, including businesses that others had, including a friend of his, had left Harvard to go found. And I found myself captivated by this. And there was actually, it, I opened my eyes to a whole new ecosystem of 
budding entrepreneurs at Harvard and at other colleges who wanted as young people to be able to step out on their own and start ventures rather than you know, going out and joining the conventional workforce. And so that got me interested in, in that phenomenon. And actually Travis and I then decided to start a business together that was designed to connect entrepreneurs with small amounts of capital, seed capital through an internet-based platform at a time where that was actually still a novel idea. Now, lots of other businesses have, have come on and you know, built similar platforms. I think we did that for, for a couple of years. I mean, I graduated and I had already you know, been on track to doing what I was gonna do after I graduated, which is joining the world of biotech investing, something I was really passionate about, but I was still interested in, in you know, getting this business off the ground with Travis. We built a website, we uh, you know, grew a customer base, we hired somebody in the butt, we hired you know, an older sales guy in the Boston area, grew out our team a little bit, and it became something, at least for, for you know, where we were in our careers, uh, something of a success for us. And so we built that out, sold it to uh, the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, actually, which is, a, which is a nonprofit organization, but wanted to buy this and branching out and rebranding that as a, as a new platform called iStart. And, uh, and you know, it was nice at an early age to get the experience of building something. And even though in retrospect, it might have been on a small scale at the time, it felt, it felt certainly meaningful and, and important to us. Uh, you know, raising outside seed capital from venture investors, et cetera, the whole nine yards. And the fact that it had a successful ending made it all the sweeter in memory. That's great. And obviously just the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey. So after Harvard, you attended Yale Law School. So what led you to law school and what point did you know you wanted to become an entrepreneur again? Yeah. So actually the story for me was I, I became a biotech investor. So I graduated from Harvard in 2007. I joined an investment firm in New York where they were just beginning to dip their toes into biotech investing. I, was, I still had my passion for science. Like I told you, I became a molecular biology person after having studied genetics, decided that that was actually an intellectual passion of mine. The rub I ran into is that the career track in academic science basically requires you to literally labor away, you know, manually in the lab in ways that you know, didn't interest me quite as much. The time horizon you had to spend in the lab to come to the, get to the bottom of a particular answer was a really long time for, for me, at least, to keep me as intellectually engaged as I wanted to be. I'm, I'm really, I really admire the people who, who are able to do that. I think that wasn't as much a fit for me. So I got involved in biotech investing where I was still able to wear my scientific hat, but be a biotech investor. I did that for three years. And one thing that I discovered a few years in was that I had never really fully scratched just an intellectual itch that I had at the intersection of law and political philosophy, basically. And I wanted to figure out where I could do that. And, and Yale was a place where I was told that was a particularly uh, intellectually liberal scope of law school education as, as law school goes. And I found myself pretty interested in that. So I went and spent days with a few friends down there, did that again. And eventually I went to my bosses at the hedge fund where I was working and I told them that, hey, look, I, I love what I'm doing here, but I want to go to law school. And they told me something interesting, which was, gee, why don't you keep your job, manage a portfolio and, and go to law school at the same time? Thought about it, thought that was a pretty good offer. So I decided to go ahead and do it. It actually got me, funny enough, more autonomy in my job and my years in law school ended up being some of my most successful years as an investor, both in the investments I was making and as a result of that personally for me too. Uh, but <laughs> that was, it was sort of by happenstance that you kind of get out of the day-to-day -day mold you're in, you're willing to make a jump. In this case, the opportunity followed me. And those ended up being three great years of my life from 2010 to 2013. When I graduated and came back, then I came back full-time to my job as an investor. And at that point, that just felt incomplete. I really wanted to take on some of the challenges that I had seen as an investor in biotech and in pharma that I couldn't address as, as just a passive investor sitting on the sidelines. 
that's when I decided to dive in and, and actually build a company that, you know, that, that I would ultimately take on myself, the challenge of reducing time and cost and some of these issues that you couldn't address necessarily as an investor. So, so I went to my bosses once more. I said, I'm the second time I'm leaving, I'm going to start a company. And this time, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't any version of staying at, at my job as an investor that would have worked. So I left, but actually they, they said, the first thing they said was we'd, we'd like to be one of your big seed investors. And so that worked out really well too. So it was a happy ending in the end. And a couple of lessons from both iterations of that, if I may, for, for folks who may be thinking about their own career journey in college now is I, th I think you got to ultimately do what feels most natural to you in the pursuit of your own calling. And that doesn't necessarily mean entrepreneurship and starting a business. It might be an intellectual calling. It might be an artistic calling. It might be a, a, different, a different pursuit that calls you. But if you're doing what you ultimately enjoy and feel a greater sense of passion for at that time, good things are going to happen in ways that you can't predict. And, and that, I think, is, is a tailwind that you won't be able to plan in advance, but you'll be able to ride it when it hits you. And that's something that I've learned both in ways, in ways where I haven't done that in the past and have regretted it, but in ways that I have done it and, and the best things that have come out of my own career journey have come out of moments where I really pursued doing the thing I actually wanted to be doing at that time. We also wanted to ask you why biotech is so important to you. You know, you just mentioned calling. So I just wanted to focus on, on that aspect of your, your life. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that there, there are a few things that I think, in, in, especially in the current moment we live in as a country, as a world, that we can all agree on. But I think one of those things we can all agree on is that, that human disease is something that we would all us equal rather not live with in, in nearly all cases, uh, in all senses of that word. And it was kind of when you think about the things that define us as human beings or the ideas we have or the pursuits that we, that we take on in our lives, but we're only able to have ideas or engage with one another or live with one another or pursue our passion and our dreams and our pursuit of happiness if we first begin with kind of the bedrock foundation of our health, of our basic health. I mean, you can't really realize your deeper human emotions and passions and dreams if you don't, if you're in pain or, or if you have sickle cell disease and you have vasoclusive crises that cause you to show up in the hospital and are suffering from pain in the meantime. I picked that because that's one of the diseases that we've since focused on, on potentially treating or curing, that's just, that's just the table stakes for living a fully human life. And so for me, there was something fundamental about starting my career as, you know, as a student, eventually as an investor, and, and now as an entrepreneur in focusing on addressing some of those most basic needs in a way that irrespective of whether you, your passion is technology or your passion is the pursuit of humanities or intellectualism, we can all agree that, that health is foundational and for me, that was part of one of the early passions that drove me to say, if I'm going to spend seven years of my life doing something, as it's been since I started the company, might as well be something that was really going to be worth doing. And I think developing medicines is high on that list for me. Absolutely. And especially with the, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, we can all see that health is the number one priority. Uh, Charlotte's going to get into a little bit more detail about your uh, company. So, Charlotte. Yes, thank you so much. As Virginia said, we're now going to switch to your process of being an entrepreneur. Um, so my question is, what were the biggest challenges in building Royvent, especially at the early stages? And were you ever scared of taking a risk and starting your own firm rather than going the safe route of practicing law? Yeah, so, so practicing law wasn't really on the table for me, but that was a separate issue. And I, I really just went for 
really the intellectual experience. And I'm, I'm glad I did. It was a lot of fun. It allowed me to engage more in school than I would have if I was thinking about a career after. But, but the base alternative would have been being an investor for me, continuing my job at the hedge fund where I was. You know, I had been promoted to partner. It was, it was a perfectly attractive path to be on. And, and that, was, that was really the choice. So for me, the choice wasn't difficult to get started. I think once getting started, I, I encountered challenges that I didn't expect to encounter. I think the first of those challenges is you kind of have a chicken and egg problem. If, if you set out with an idea with respect to the people you're able to attract and, and the chicken and egg problem is that, look, uh, you know, great people gravitate to great opportunities, but you can only create a great opportunity or something that's a truly lasting and clear great opportunity if you really have great people at the ground. In some sense, that same, that same issue exists usually with respect to capital too, is that you have a chicken and egg problem, especially in biotech, where it takes a lot of capital to develop drugs, but you can't sit out on developing drugs. You won't have any drugs to develop if you didn't have capital in the first place. So the first challenge in, in getting out of any entrepreneurial quagmire in the very beginning is finding your way out of those chicken and egg dilemmas. Those present themselves, you know, really early on in almost any entrepreneurial journey is the thing you want to get. You don't have the basic inputs to be able to get there, but to get those basic inputs, you have to have a little bit of the thing you want to get that, you know, presents itself in, in network effect businesses, presents itself in biotech from a capital and people perspective shows up almost all the time. I think the answer is really, uh, they are not to make the giant leap to one end of the spectrum or the other, but you got to just inch your way into it. You got the chicken, you got the egg, you got to sort of bridge the gap between them a little bit, a little bit at a time. And, and I think that very rare are you able to just sort of take a leap and get lucky. But, but if, you, if you, through effort, really bridge that gap, then you get the two of them close enough that you kind of, it's like a chemical reaction. You have a, a catalytic reaction and, and, and things come into being that otherwise wouldn't have come. So that, that was, that was you know, sort of some of the challenges in the early days were just attracting great people, especially in an area like biotech, where you need people who not only are willing to challenge the conventional wisdom, that in some sense, that part was easier, but people who also know how to actually develop drugs. It's still a regulated industry. Every trial you do, et cetera, has to go through the blessing of the FDA. You need people who understand exactly the technocratic inner workings of, of how to develop drugs. And I, I knew enough to be dangerous for my career as an investor, but not enough to actually do it on my own. You know, No one can do it on their own. And there are people who had far greater expertise than I did that I needed on board to be able to do that. So that was, uh, that was challenge one. Challenge two is, is willingness to fail. Uh, you know, I think in biotech, especially this is true, but I think it's true in, in any new venture. You take a big risk and you ultimately run into failure. You may run a clinical trial for a disease that you don't know if it's going to work until you've spent tens, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, one of the first drugs that we developed was a drug for Alzheimer's disease. It would have been world-changing, in my opinion, if it had worked. I thought it had a good chance of working. We knew there was also a good chance of failure. We took the bet. It made sense. And if given the opportunity, I would do it, do it again every time, but it failed. And, and that failure hurt. It was painful early in the life of a business to run into a failure like that. And I think that the key there is, again, bridging the gap between both positioning yourself to take a risk that's worth taking, but to be able to do it in a way that doesn't make your own entrepreneurial journey existential on the back of any one risk that's out of your control. That doesn't necessarily mean the business itself. In, in our case, we did run into business that way, that we had a diversified enough base of assets. But even speaking to an entrepreneur, it might be that your first business doesn't work out. 
as long as your own entrepreneurial energy isn't really sapped up by that, you're willing to actually harness from that, not the experience of victimhood from having gotten unlucky or, or whatever due to failure, but rather through treating hardship as not the same thing as victimhood, but hardship as something that actually teaches you a bit more about who you are and why it is you're doing what you're doing and in a way allowing yourself liberating yourself to be strengthened by it. So those would be a couple of reflections that I that I bring to bear from my own experience. Right, and now the willingness to fail, I think is important for anyone to learn. Um, and as you were saying with the challenge of attracting great people with the chicken and egg dilemma, it actually leads me to my next question. And how do you manage people effectively and cul cultivate your company culture? And what does your schedule look like as an executive chairman of Roy Vent Sciences? Well, I'm new in the executive chairman role. And the executive chairman means a lot of different things at a lot of companies. I only uh, graduated from the CEO role this January. Uh, but I think that one of the things you got to be prepared for as an entrepreneur, no matter what you call yourself, uh, in the days of a CEO, and I think it's true today too, is, is you, have to, you have to be willing to spend your time and attention in ways that create the most value. And that changes day by day. Sometimes that means diving really deep into, into a minute issue that just only your attention can ultimately get the company to the right place because that minute issue has a lot of important things that come out of it. Sometimes it means separating yourself from the minute issues and letting other people do their jobs in a way that doesn't inhibit them. And sometimes it means, you know, once in a while, occasionally recharging yourself, making sure that you have the space for creativity to be able to allow your creative energy to, to remain the guiding force for business, which is pretty important for most founders to make sure that they're continuing to bring that every day. Sometimes that means showing up in the office and sometimes it means that you're staying awake and, and allowing yourself to have the creative latitude to be able to, to really bring it with respect to your creativity rather than just bring it with respect to your physical presence. So, so you know, I, I guess that's been one of my experiences is that there is no such thing as a, as a schedule. You gotta guide yourself based on knowing where your attention and time is best spent in a way that creates the most value. And, and sometimes that means doing more, sometimes that means doing less and you gotta roll and be willing to roll with that variability if you wanna you know, hack it as, as an entrepreneur doing something big. Oh, thank you. The variety of your schedule de definitely does seem very interesting. I just wanted to switch over, given that we are living during this pandemic, my next question is, given how COVID has changed society today, economically and scientifically, which areas have the most opportunity in the biotech industry going forward? Yeah, so that's a broad question. Uh, and I think there's a lot of areas that have great promise in, in biotech. I think it's some of the new treatment modalities that go beyond just conventional small molecules. One of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is, is the design of new molecules using supercomputing power. If you think about wave one in pharma was high, what they called high throughput screening. You would take chemical libraries, effectively throw gunk against the wall, see what sticks, but do it through in a high throughput way that you get enough things that stick that could become potential medicine. Wave two was actually harnessing nature instead of chance as a way of developing the right kinds of drugs. We call those biologics because they're developed by human biology. Cells are developing, say, antibodies that bind to specific targets that nature has honed it to say that actually we can go after that target, not because you designed a chemical in a chemical library somewhere, but because nature produced it. And we actually use nature itself as the manufacturing method, as the production method to make many of those medicines. Those are what we call biologics. I think there's now a new wave now, which comes back to the small molecules, but not doing it by chance, but doing that by design too. But the intelligent design there isn't nature. It's actually things like artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms that are now designing from scratch in silico 
as the expression goes, on the basis of the computer, using the intelligent design of Dose and Crack. So that's that's still, I believe, in the early days, but is but is slowly beginning to mature in a way that, that looks a lot more promising now than it might have a decade ago. It's one of tens of areas that I'm excited about in biotech, but in you know that's that's one that, that I might highlight. Well, we've been active as a company as well, investing pretty heavily in, in applicational discovery as it's important. But thank you so much for touching on that. And I'm now going to pass it over to Shayak to ask the next couple of questions. Thanks. Next, what have been the biggest failures and successes in the drugs that you have developed? Yes, yeah, so the biggest failure I alluded to earlier, uh, which was a, uh, a drug for Alzheimer's disease. And, and part of the reason it was the biggest failure was, was what a big success it would have been for anyone, including ourselves, to have a successful drug for Alzheimer's, which the field is missing. I think probably the success that I'm most proud of, uh, you know, has to be one of our two FDA approved products. And it probably is one that I'll highlight for, uh, for a drug called Religolix for prostate cancer, which was approved in, uh, you know, within the last year. And, and that's something that came out of efforts that began at Royven. Actually, the company that's now uh, marketing that drug is now owned as a majority owned sub of a different company, part of a transaction that we did at the end of 2019. But Royman is really the one that that got that drug off the ground in a way that would not have happened. Where there was a Japanese pharma company that was developing this drug for a different disease, including women's health. They had done an early trial in prostate cancer. When we took that drug over, you know, I think there were a lot of people who might have who might have actually uh, said that you should focus just on women's health and not on prostate cancer. But we made the decision to say, hey, we need to develop this drug in both indications. It was developed in slightly different ways. The chemical formulation for women's health involved the addition of a different chemical entity that didn't exist. And it was a different dose that used for the treatment of prostate cancer. But studied the data, studied the biology, said this was worth doing. And you know, lo and behold, now to see that a few years later, and I wish I had it here, but just on the other side of my desk, if I, if I left my desk, I could show you here uh, on the video, you know, is, is a bottle of an approved product. And, and I, I look at that every day and keep it next to my desk because it, it, it's something that I'm proud of. It's something that I know would not have reached patients were it not for the efforts of the people who worked in our company. And, and that's something that makes what we do worth doing and, and continue to double down on that every day. That's really amazing to hear about. From my research work with using machine learning for drug discovery, I've become really aware of how the cost of drug discovery is increasing over time. So every new success is very impressive. We'd love to end with one final question, which we ask all of our guests, which is, what is your hottest take? I think that uh, it's probably gonna be expressed in the book that I'm writing. So I'm writing a book called Woke Inc, uh, Woke Incorporated. It's coming out this August. And it basically makes the case that I think businesses should stay out of politics. And that is something that I would have expected 10 years ago not to be terribly controversial. It's a really controversial idea today, the idea that, that businesses ought to focus on the pursuit of profit by making goods and services for people who need them. And, and I think that that latter part is actually the important part. It's more important than the profit, is the idea that business ought to focus on products that people need. That's actually a form of social impact in its own right. And Milton Friedman wrote about this in 1970. That was a popular idea then. It became a less popular idea over time. It's certainly a less popular idea today. And I agree with what a lot of Milton Friedman had to say, but actually part of my reason for saying it isn't just because I think it'll operate, it'll allow companies to operate better, which I do believe. But even more importantly, it will allow the rest of our society to remain intact as well without giving companies too much power to exercise influence over, over American democratic institutions. And I actually think that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of political polarization and division and populist backlash comes not from the idea that companies 
make products for the pursuit of profit. Everyone, I think, basically gets that. It actually comes from the quieter frustration with the idea that actually companies might have too much power, not in the market, but in the marketplace of ideas. And, and when elite Americans tell the rest of Americans what they're supposed to think, that's actually something that fosters resentment, that even well-intentioned behavior by institutional leaders and corporate leaders can backfire in a big way. And I think that that's part of the cultural malaise that we're suffering in the country. So that's uh, more to say on that. And, and, and the book is, I'm not gonna stop all of you from pre-ordering it. Uh, it's available on pre-order and, and it'll be out this summer in August. And that's the bottom line. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe to stay tuned for future episodes and check us out online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, you can also reach us at hello at harvardventures.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.